As you know, we've been going through the book of Revelation, and uh, we're going to continue with that this morning. We're in Revelation chapter 12, so if you brought your Bibles, please turn to that chapter, and you can follow along. And if you didn't bring one, there's probably one sitting in the pew in front of you there. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. All right, quite the vision, huh? What does it possibly mean? Uh, I think we've got a good idea. Let me, let me share with you a, a little table I put together. I'm going to read you the text, tell you what I think it means, and then tell you why I think it means what it means. So we'll start off with the text. It says, A woman clothed with, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. I believe this is referring to the nation of Israel. Let me tell you why I think that. The woman, of course, is the nation of Israel. The sun is Jacob, the moon is Rachel. They were the parents of the tribes of Israel. And the 12 stars are the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I didn't just like this. I came up with this for two reasons. First of all, it says the woman gave birth to a son, who we're going to see in a moment is the Messiah. So a lot of people think, oh, it's Mary. No, it's not Mary. The rest of the vision doesn't apply to Mary. So what else could it possibly be? When we look at how this verbiage has already been used in the Bible, I think it becomes quite clear. Genesis says this, Joseph dreamed and told his brothers, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. All right, so we have the exact same imagery, sun, moon, and 12 stars. Steve, it says 11 stars. Yeah, well, he has the vision. He's the 12th star. He's the other 12th brother. They bowed down to me. And his father rebuked him and said, Shall your mother and I and your brothers come and bow down to the earth before you? So the idea is this is the nation of Israel. It's pictured by the patriarchs, um, Rachel and Jacob, and then the 12 tribes. This is Israel giving birth to the Messiah. And that's verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Obviously, this is referring to the Messiah. Um, everybody knows this, but there's still reasons we believe it. It says he's going to rule all nations with an iron scepter. There's only one person in all the Bible who is said to rule all nations with an iron scepter, and that's the Messiah, and it specifically says that in Psalm 2. And it says the child was snatched up to God and his throne. We know Yeshua, Jesus, went up to heaven, sat down at the right hand of the throne in heaven. So, in this vision, time is kind of like this. As Doctor Who would say, timey-wimey. Doesn't make any sense. Here's John writing 2,000 years ago, and he's looking into the future, 
And while he's looking into the future, he's also talking about an event in the past. So in talking about Jesus' birth, Jesus already came, lived, died, and rose. But now he's talking about this dragon who's hurling the stars to the earth. That hasn't happened yet. So it's all mixed together. There's flashbacks, there's flash forwards, there's contemporary. And we've got to be real careful to try to figure out which part is which. Talking about Jesus, that was a flashback. But now I'm talking about this dragon and his tail and this war in heaven. We're going to flash forward. Verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. Who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now some people might think this is also the past. Because the fall of Satan. When Satan and his demons rebelled against God, that was in John's past. So they might say, ah, John is talking about the ancient past. But it's not because it's talking about in the next few verses, which we'll get to, the war results in Satan being thrown to the earth, and then he makes war against the earth, and that hasn't happened yet. So how do we reconcile this? Well, we know the fall of angels had already fallen, happened, but somehow, even after that, Satan and at least some of the angel demons are still allowed access to heaven. Some portion of it at some times for some reasons. Now, how do I know this? Well, in the book of Job, which is one of the earliest books in the Bible, it says that Satan appeared with the sons of God, the angels, before God and brought charges against Job. So we know Satan, chief fallen angel, the devil himself, was able to come to God who is in heaven and bring charges against one of God's saints. So I think what's going on here is Michael and his angels at God's commandment are now telling him they're not allowed here anymore. Cast them out. No more access to heaven. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren in this very chapter. He's not going to be allowed to accuse anymore. And so Michael and his angels, they go to war and they throw him out. Their access to heaven is denied. They're barred from heaven and banished to earth. That's one of the reasons the tribulation gets so nasty. Because Satan is thrown to earth with a bunch of demons and God lets them do their thing. Verse 12 starts off talking about it. Woe to the earth. Woe to the sea. Because the devil has gone, gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Now that's some good news. And you've got to understand, he knows his time is short. So his plan is to do as much damage as he can before God sends him into hell. His plan is to take as many of us with him as he can. This is not good. He knows his time is short, that's good news. But because of it, he's going to just go wild and cause as much chaos as he can. When the dragon saw that he, that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Who is the woman? Israel. So as soon as he gets thrown to earth, he goes and attacks Israel. He makes war against the chosen people. However, verse 14 tells us that God's going to protect him. Verse 14. The woman, um, the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, 
where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. All right, a couple things. Already told you the woman is Israel. It says she was given two wings as a great eagle to escape. This is vision talk. It's like a metaphor. What's it stand for? Some people have made the mistake of thinking about the most popular eagle in our day and associating it with this passage of Scripture and saying, ah, United States, our eagle. This must be the United States saving Israel. That sounds nice. But that's not how you study the Bible. You can't just take a metaphor, find something that seems to match up with it, and then make it apply. That's, there's some very famous books out right now, and that's what they're doing, and you just can't do that. You have to either say, I don't know what it's talking about, or here's some options, or here's what it's probably talking about based on other scripture. Let me tell you what I think it's talking about based on other scripture. I'm, pre- I'm pretty confident what it's talking about. Two wings of a great eagle. When the nation of Israel, same people group, was delivered from the Exodus, from Egypt in the Exodus, what did the scripture say? God says, I bore you out on eagle's wings. It's a metaphor for divine deliverance. So, and that's exactly what we have in verse 14. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time. I said divine deliverance. You're going to see in just a moment in the next couple of verses that's exactly what happens. But first I've got to talk to you about time, times, and half a time. Uh, yeah, times, time, and half a time. Okay, time equals one year. Times... Two years, half a time, half a year. Time times half a time equals three and a half years. I'm not guessing at this. I know this for a fact. And here's how. I'm going to show you two passages of Scripture, one from Daniel and one from Revelation. And they both talk about the exact same event, and they both give the same amount of time, but with different language. Listen, here's Daniel. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change the time and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. So the Antichrist is going to speak his blasphemous words, and the believers are going to be martyred, subject to his wrath, for time, times, half a time, whatever that means. But then we go to the book of Revelation. It talks about the exact same event. Here's what it says. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Aha! So times, times, half a time is the same thing as 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. We got it. And then as we go through the scripture, we find out that this three and a half year time frame is repeated over and over and over again, talking about the tribulation period. It's a seven year period, broken into two parts, right in the middle, Three and a half years, three and a half years. This is Daniel's 70th week. Daniel prophesies about the Messiah coming in a set of weeks. 69 of those weeks have been fulfilled. They're weeks of years. But one of those weeks of years in the book of Daniel has not been fulfilled. It takes us all the way up to the coming of the Messiah, his death, his resurrection, and the destruction of Jerusalem. 69 weeks fulfilled. And then everybody's like, what happened to that 70th week? Hasn't been fulfilled yet. Time gap. Don't know when it's going to start. None of us do. But when it does start, we know God's going to wrap up his program in seven years. 
It'll be in three and a half year segments. First half is going to be bad, really bad. The second half is going to be unbelievably bad. And it's called the Great Tribulation. Time, times, and half a time is language that's used in Daniel and in Revelation 12. 42 months in the same context, Revelation chapter 13, verse 5, and sometimes it's even mentioned by days. 1,260 days in Revelation 12, 6, and each one means the exact same thing, three and a half years. So we know Satan's going to be cast to the earth, and immediately he's going to go after God's chosen people. Why? He hates God's chosen people for a couple of reasons. One, because God loves them. Two, because they're responsible for bringing Messiah into the world. And he hates Jesus. So he's going to go attack Israel. But I told you, God's going to deliver Israel miraculously. Verse 15, here's his, the details of the attack and the deliverance. Again, in prophetic vision form. Then from his mouth, the serpent, from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So Satan attacks Israel with a river out of his mouth. That stands for something. The earth opens up its mouth to receive the river so it doesn't hit Israel. That stands for something. And Israel is taken care of for times, times, and half a times in the wilderness by God. She's miraculously de delivered and taken care of. What is the river that comes out of the dragon's mouth to overwhelm Israel? I have an opinion, which I'm fairly confident is right, but I want to be careful, you know. I think this river refers to a flood of nations and peoples. This fits because elsewhere in the scripture, it says all the nations will be gathered against Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, Israel, has to flee. In Revelation, as I read to you a couple weeks ago, it says the Gentiles end up trotting the holy city underfoot for three and a half years. So Israel is actually kicked out of their land again. They flee, but they're kept alive, preserved as a unit, and the Gentiles come in and take over Israel. So I think this flood of nations, uh, this flood refers to nations attacking Israel. Am I sure? No. And then it says the earth opens her mouth to swallow that flood. No idea what that means. I do know it's divine deliverance, but whether it's through a nation helping, whether it's through a mighty earthquake that swallows the army that attacks, I don't know. That's a, that's a symbolism I don't understand yet. I do know this. Satan's plan against Israel's Israel fails. But in a rage, he finds another group to attack. Okay, now, I keep saying Satan, Satan, Satan. Satan is working through people. As we're going to see in the coming weeks, he's going to be working through the Antichrist and a league of nations that support the Antichrist. In the Bible, the Antichrist is called the beast. These league of nations are also called the beast. So when it says, when I say Satan attacks Israel, I don't mean there's going to be an invisible angel whacking Israel with swords. I mean, he's going to inspire the Antichrist and his nations to go after Israel. So, since he fails because God miraculously delivers them, he finds another group to attack. Verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went, to make, went off to make war against the rest of her offspring those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
So the nation of Israel, which for the most part does not yet believe in Jesus, is being preserved and protected miraculously. Well, if I can't attack Israel, I'm going to attack the next best thing, the offspring of Israel. Now, what is the offspring of Israel? Because if you're physically the offspring of Israel, you're Israel. That's what makes you Israel, by being the offspring of Israel. So it can't be the physical offspring. It must be the spiritual offspring. That's the church. That's believers in Jesus. All the Gentile people who believe in Jesus that aren't part of Israel are going to suffer the worst persecution the world has ever seen, inspired by Satan himself. Listen, God preserves the nation of Israel. He does not preserve his saints from persecution. That's a head trip, isn't it? Why? I don't know. I can tell you this. God made a promise that Israel would never cease to be a nation. And that when Jesus comes back, she will be the head of all nations. He didn't make that promise to all the other nations from which we gather ourselves. Now, there have been individual Jewish martyrs. I'm not talking about all the individual Jews being saved. They're not all going to be saved. As a nation, they'll be saved. There will be individual martyrs. And I'm not, the church isn't a nation. It's a bunch of individuals. And a bunch of those individuals will be martyred. So in one hand, it's the same. And on the other hand, it's a nation of people. But remember, almost all the martyrs in the Bible were part of the protected nation of Israel. So God preserves the nation, but not necessarily the individuals. When I was in Texas last week with God's Learning Channel, one of our guests was a pastor, a minister named Gatana, who suffered persecution in Ethiopia. Um, he saw his family and friends murdered, and he spent the last 10 or 12 years with Voice of the Martyrs ministering to persecuted church, telling story after story after story. For example, he told the story about um, this recent massacre. It might have been in Ethiopia, the one he was telling me, very recent where um, they went and killed like a whole bunch of people. And this Christian was watching these Muslims kill all these people. And he said, why are you killing them? Because they're Christians. Well, I'm a Christian too. And they killed him too. He told this story out of pride of the man who stood up despite his life being at risk. He could have kept his mouth shut and been fine. He was a, he was a standby. He was just watching. He could have just slinked away. He doesn't want us to forget. And he wants us to stand. I asked him on camera, live TV, how can I pray for these people? What can we do? He said, don't pray for them to be delivered. Please understand, what do I know? This is a man of God a minister who himself has lost family, who has himself been tortured, and ministers to the persecuted and the martyrs for the last decade. I asked him for education. And what does he tell me? Don't pray for them to be delivered. I must have given him a look. He said, look in the Bible. Do you see anywhere where it says to pray for them to be delivered? And have they been delivered throughout history? He said, pray that they will faithfully endure and that their tormentors will be saved. So, I just can't not pray for them to be delivered. I'm going to keep praying. But I'm also going to pray that if not, that they will be faithfully, they faithfully endure, and that their tormentors will be saved. 
It's funny, time and time again when he tells me these stories of persecution, he also tells me about the persecuted witnessing to their tormentors and many of them getting saved. And he said, Muslims throughout the Middle East are coming to faith by the wagon load. So we hear the bad news, but there's some good news coming out of it as well. Jesus is being magnified and honored. And the bravery of the martyrs is one of the things that's helping these terrorists get saved. So let me ask you, and you don't have to answer, but if God could say, hey, you're going to suffer for a week or two and then die, would you do that so somebody could spend an eternity in heaven with me? Most believers would say, yeah, I'll, save, I'll give my life to save a soul. I'm going to die anyway. Might as well make something count out of it. And I think that's why the martyrs don't get preserved. Believers will suffer horrible persecution. It says... Check this out. He makes war against her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I've, I've heard this like, oh, this must be Seventh-day Adventists say, oh, that's us because we're the ones who keep God's commandments. And I've heard Messianic Jews say, oh, that's us because we're the ones who keep God's commandments. You know who keeps God's commandments? Everybody who loves Jesus keeps God's commandments. Did Jesus himself say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? Yes, he did. It's not talking about those peculiar commandments that we argue over, those odd Old Testament laws that some people think are still valid and others don't, and those five laws. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about those who honor God and obey him. It's the church. Satan's going after the church. All right, verse 11. Here's the consequence. Here's the result of Satan going after the church. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Now, this is a peculiar set of words. They overcame him, they died. We don't usually put those two things together. We think overcoming means living. We, we fight, and we win, and we triumph. Yay! There's other types of triumph, people. When the devil himself, the most evil being in the universe, the most powerful being in the universe next to God, now, he's nowhere near God in power. Don't misunderstand me. But he's way over us. And he's smart. Real smart. Who do you think taught Hitler his public PR policy? Who taught Hitler about brainwashing and psychological warfare? Satan is smart. He knows how to press your buttons and torture and manipulate and twist and do everything to confuse you and make you turn your back on Jesus. And he fails. That's what it means that they overcame. The devil himself tried to get these people to deny, deny Jesus and he failed. Ha! Overcomers. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. What does that mean? Let me explain that to you. I read David Guzik's commentary on this passage. I thought his explanation was brilliant. So I'm just going to read to you from his commentary. Listen, he's talking about overcoming by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Quote, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. The blood overcomes Satan's accusations. Those accusations mean nothing against us because Jesus has already paid the penalty our sins deserved. We may be even worse than Satan's accusations, but we're still made righteous by the work of Jesus on the cross. 
It's important to say that we should not regard the blood of Jesus in a superstitious manner. It's not a magical potion, nor is it the literal blood of Jesus literally applied that saves or cleanses us. The blood speaks to us of the real physical death of Jesus in our place, on our behalf before God. The literal death in our place and the literal judgment he bore on our behalf is what saves us. Therefore, we use the blood of the lamb in spiritual warfare, not as a Christian abracadabra, as if chanting the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus could keep Satan away, like garlic is said to keep away vampires. Rather, our understanding, our apprehension, our focus, may I say our obsession with the death of Jesus on the cross as our substitute wins the battle. Amen and amen. All right, let's wrap all this up. During the tribulation, this seven-year period, it's going to look like Satan is winning. He'll overcome the two witnesses, the two prophets. We talked about them last week. He'll attack Israel and conquer Jerusalem. He'll persecute Christians by the wagon load, killing us left and right, martyrs everywhere, beyond count. It's going to look like he's winning. But looks can be deceiving. Those two witnesses he kills are going to rise from the dead and ascend to heaven in front of everybody's face. The Christians he kills will immediately be in the presence with Jesus, never to suffer again, and he failed because his ultimate task wasn't to kill them. His ultimate task was to chase them away from Jesus, and he fails. Israel, even though he chases them out of their country, will be miraculously delivered. Yeah, it'll look like he's winning, but looks are deceiving. He knows his time is short. We need to also know that his time is short. Through their faith and through their testimony, they will not bow before the devil. They will love God and be faithful to him even to the point of death. Satan's time is short. God's victory is certain. It's already written. We just have to turn the page. That's why chapter 12 says this. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Messiah have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. You know what? Right now, it might look to you like Satan's winning. Our government is just flushing us down the toilet. We've got our government promoting immoral and godless laws and persecuting people who stand against them. Christians are being persecuted mildly right now in this country. I can only imagine it's going to get worse. Right now in Canada, modern Western nation, 70 pastors are in the court systems for having had the nerve to preach that the Bible says homosexuality is wrong. In, I forgot which country, up in the Netherlands, he told me about a pastor who did the same thing 
he's facing seven years of prison and a $500,000 fine. It's happening now, but not so much in our country, but we're heading there. It looks like Satan is winning, but looks can be deceiving. The victory is already written. I played a song for you on video a few weeks back that just, I love it. It tells us that we're overcomers, and I'm going to put it back on up for you. If you crank up the sound for me, let's take a look.
So uh, I'm going to close off and let the, the, the band uh, lead us. And then when they're done, you're, you're going to be dismissed. And I'm not going to come back up again. I just want to encourage you this week, hold your head high. Yes, things get hard, but your victory's already written. That's it. We've won. Jesus won for us, through us, and by us. Amen. So let's sing some songs of praise and have a fabulous week, shall we?